Hey, Travis Rogers here. When you're not listening to me on the Lakers pre- and post-game shows, tune in to The Experience with Laferne Cusack, where she goes beyond the play and focuses on athletes, fans, and the biggest events that inspire and shape our community. Listen to The Experience with Laferne Cusack, Sundays, 5 to 6 a.m. ESPN LA 710. Economies are undergoing a transformative period. The energy sector in particular holds great potential to revitalize African economies and empower the growth and development. This is a subject NJ Ayuk dives into in great detail in his book, Billions at Play, The Future of African Energy and Doing Deals. We discuss a whole variety of things, including The global climate strikes that are happening, protesters rallying around the world, how professional athletes are using their notoriety to shed light on climate change and encourage others to help protect our environment. Though we hear a lot of me versus them attitude, we're concentrating on it's us, the whole world. We talk about accountability and trust negotiation skills, and how NJ is empowering women and creating jobs. Mr. NJ Ayuk took the time to call in from South Africa. We're thinking global here on the experience today. I know I got a lot out of it, and I hope you do too. ESPN LA 710. I'm so happy to be speaking with NJ Ayuk. He's author of Billions at Play. He's a visionary, a deal maker, speaker, entrepreneur, lawyer, and a father. Welcome to the show, NJ. Thank you so much, my friend, for having me. It's an honor. You are a leading visionary in energy around the world. Tell us about your background. I was born in Cameroon. I grew up there in a little town in basically a a little village. And I was lucky to get a grant and a big opportunity to go to Europe, the United States, to get an education. And I went to school at the University of Maryland, also studied law in the United States. And uh, that changed me. I think my American experience learning about Saul Good Marshall, learning about some of the great civil rights heroes, and also the great business heroes, especially African-American culture, Latino culture, and middle-class cultures in America really shaped me. And coming back to Africa, I just wanted to do something different. I just felt I could change the world, and I could build something and use my unique American experience to better my community. And... uh who knows? I just went out there reckless and abandoned, <laughs> and yeah, 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 and up today. How did your mom and dad raise you in a way that expanded your mind that you could come to America and learn all these different cultures and unique things? Well, we were broke, you know. When you when you when you, when broke, <laughs> you, 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 you find it, you know. Right. So sometimes when you're too comfortable, you don't want to move out. You don't want to do anything. We, we were just broke, and you knew you had to move. You knew you had to go somewhere. But also, we we had seen um, great American stories from rags to riches. And I remember as a kid growing up. 
you could see when you read about America, you look and read about American communities, you could see these people that had nothing and they had come from, you know, very different backgrounds, mm-hmm. whether we're slaves, whether we're immigrants, whether we're Holocaust survivors, whether we're people from small towns and they just built themselves up and so much opportunity that came out out of that. And you, you admire that. You envision that drive and you say, hey, man, I just want to be like these guys. And I want to, and for me, I was, you know, just curiosity. Mm-hmm. That was, I want to learn what, what uh, made them, how they could overcome that. Because take, for example, um, African Americans, for example, in the United States, the background, the history, the struggle, overcoming slavery, Jim Crow, segregation, institutional discrimination, and all of that, and still finding that force to go forward with it. But yeah, I was an African kid whom I got up every day. You know, before you had Obama, I had all my persons. They looked like me, my ministers, my everybody looked like me. But I, was, but I could see these people, and I, re- I was with great admiration. And I thought that really shaped us. And when you go out there, you see different things. You really open to your heart and you see how different people, and then also vision that I could pull, draw from these experiences and then do something better in my own community and grow from there. What you're talking about also is like there's a sense of urgency to succeed and, and learn new things. So in your head, if I, I'm correct, you're like, there is no other way but to succeed. There, absolutely. I mean, you you know, they say when you're down, there's nowhere to go that up, you know. So you look at that, and when you start looking at what Dr. King says, that's fierce urgency of now. You know, do I move forward? Do I get in the classroom? Do I walk? Do I do my homework? You know, I'm going to be a little hungry, I know. It's going to be a little tight, I know. But you got, you, you got to make it. You got, you got to compete. And don't forget, I played sports. Mm. And, you know, I didn't make it to the big league, but it's something that that I got out of being an athlete. Mm-hmm. That is compete. Yes. Compete. I learned how to compete. I learned how to never, it doesn't matter if I was losing the game. My coaches always told me, you, you just believe that you can turn this game around. And I, and I remember those coaches in, as a kid growing up and playing soccer and playing rugby them to always tell me and them just pumping me up with this belief that you could change it and you could break it. And I think that competitive spirit as an athlete, yeah, I think it really helped shape me yes. going to America, going to school, competing. And also it gives me a certain discipline mm-hmm. that I could sit up there and say, you know, it's Friday night, but you know what, man, I got to do that homework, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I got to do that homework. I got to get my stuff ready. Even if it's Friday night, I'm not going, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm going, I'm going to go out with you guys, but it's going to be, I, it's going to be an early night for me. Right. And I think that discipline was very, very good. Yeah. And I talk about that a lot as, as you go into the workplace, you can really see the people that have played sport because their commitment, the way they are team players, the way they're able to organize and inspire a group. It's really 
distinctive. It is. I give an example. You know, when I talk to a lot of uh, young people, I interview young people for a lot of jobs in energy, in law, and in different businesses that I run. One of the key things I do during the interview process is taking these young people and say, guys, why don't we just play a game? You know, so we go in there, maybe we'll throw some basketball. And like, everybody's like, no, I'm not good. I'm like, no, don't worry. This, is, this doesn't count. Mm-hmm. It helps me look at character traits. When I look at the guy who passes the ball, I look at the guy who grabs the ball, whether we playing basketball or soccer or rugby, the guy who is willing to pass the ball, I already know this is a team player. This is a, you know, there's a guy who, there's always a guy in the soccer pitch who wants to grab the ball, he wants, he wants to be Pele or he wants to be Maradona. <laughs> he wants to be the only guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he wants to be, he wants everybody to be calling his name. I don't want that. I already understood that you're not going to be a team player. It's going to be about you. But the truth of the matter is that me succeeding, I always knew that it wasn't about me. I mean, I was a kid who came to America with $110 in my pocket till, until I finished school. I, didn't, I think my account was overdraft. I was permanently overdraft. Wow. You know, permanently overdraft. If I took a girl out for... For, um, for for movies, I I I I'll buy I'll buy her Sprite, and then I tell her like, listen, she like you got to get Sprite for your, your yourself, baby. I'm like, yeah, I got a Sprite, but I got I got sparkling water because I couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't afford a Sprite myself. Yeah. So you look at that, and then to move from that to be a multimillionaire today, and not even in in one of the poorest country, um, um, continents. Which is naturally, which is natural resource rich. It only says what the power of being disciplined, the power of teamwork, the power of using American ingenuity and staying focused can do. Like I don't, so, so I don't even know how I made it. I just knew, like, okay, I just keep going. Just the did. money doesn't even affect me or change me or anything. I don't like spending, <laughs> and also. <laughs> I don't know how much I have, but I just don't like spending. Right. I just say, okay, you, you know, you, you get involved with community, you work on the charity projects, you give back, you take different things, but also you know, you learn stories about a lot of our people that have been able to acquire riches and wealth and, and loss and lose it. And you say, listen, I got a law degree, I got an MBA, I'm not going to be a statistic. I'm gonna be something else. I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna make it better, and I'm going and, and I'm gonna be something which, you know, I've made mistakes in my life. I've been down and I've been back up, and you know, I always say those dark experiences shaped me for whatever I do today. Now you're one of the most prolific energy and deal makers. What drew you to energy? I tell you this. I was a law student in America. I had gone during the summer vacation. I had various offers to go work in some of the biggest law firms in America. Then somebody sent me a letter and said, would you mind to go to Darfur, South Sudan? That's when the Darfur crisis was going on. You had slavery still happening in Sudan. You had a war going out there. And 
everything. And crazy enough, I don't even know if I would accept that today, but crazy enough, I said, yeah, I think I, I, think I would. <laughs> so I took a job. <laughs> you know, I took a job, and I was going to work for the United Nations Development Program as a rule of law officer. So I went to Sudan, and I... You know, I, I was a big kid, and there's a beauty of what America does to you is they take a skinny, tiny African kid, and they can just stuff him up with burgers and curly fries, and <laughs> if he's got to eat everything, every, everything America gave me, had, it had to be deep, yes. and it had to be fried. So you had all the grits and all the chitlins I've been eating in school. So I went out there to Sudan, and I got, there, I got a rude awakening. And this was a kid who was left Africa as a kid, First of all, I got there, they told me, hey, you can't drink because it's a Muslim country and you're not going to have no alcohol. But then when I tried to drink tea, they put so much sugar, so I was, I was basically living on water. <laughs> oh. And then I started walking out. So no matter what happened, I lose a lot of weight. So that was good. But it was a tough job. You saw, you dealt, I dealt with women who had been raped. I dealt with a situation where you have seen rape and torture mm. used as a weapon of war. You saw the worst kind of human rights abuses. But then I had to think about a different angle. And I said, this is the effect. What is the cause? I'm not just going to come here and say, I'm going to try to make the wounded whole again by my walk for these three months I'm going to be here. I want to understand why. Mm -hmm. And as I asked the question why, what came to my heart and what came to me the entire time was, it was all about natural resources. It was about diamonds. It was about gold. It was about um, you know, lithium and coal train and all the stuff that they used for, to make our cell phones and everything was coming out of Sudan and the Congo and so there is a war going on out there where, we, where people, these local communities, are suffering. And I came back to the States, and I decided that, you know, I'm going to focus on this industry that is creating so much problems for our people. You know, whether it's oil or it's gas, the people are not getting anything. And I've gone to law school because of Thurgood Marshall. And I said this is still going to be part of that inspiration to go out there and change communities. And I just went in. I knew nothing about oil and gas. I knew nothing about mining. Really? I hated the industry. I thought it's civil rights law, you know? So I hated the industry. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't love it. There was nothing in it that was going to make me happy. I mean, my mentor in school was Dr. Ron Walters. He was Jesse Jackson's deputy campaign manager. So I came out of that movement. Mm -hmm. So now I'm going to start dealing with geologists and petroleum engineers and Texas cowboys mm -hmm. and some guys whom they see you, they call you boy. And you walk, now you've got to figure out how you're going to walk in their room and you walk to these guys, they speak with a southern twain in Africa, very powerful, and they were going, they called the shots. You know, they got the presidents and the, the, the ministers and all the big folks in their pocket. And you're going you to go in that industry and you're going to take them on fighting for, 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 you, for, for 
to really, first of all, you've got to teach people to understand that they're getting ripped off. And the second thing is to do better deals. And I just thought, I said, well, you know, if I succeed, okay. If I don't, at least I try. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And, you know, as you move in and I started being sincere, working with the guys, taking one case step by step, and I started learning the industry. And this is the beauty of America. American law school teaches you those critical thinking skills. Yeah. And then American society teaches you how to negotiate, how to always move around. You never take no for an answer. Like find a way to get around things. And you always just kept going around. It's like, it's like playing chess or playing poker. And before you realize, I was getting some victories. And all these guys who, were, who thought they were so smart, they were so brilliant, they could really negotiate better. But because I knew I came from less than, or, and I came from zero, I was getting more prepared at night. Mm. I was learning more. I was, you know, it, it didn't matter because I, I, I felt like I didn't know, I don't know anything. Right. So at night, I'll be reading that stuff, and I'll be just going back. Was I like going back to school again? Yes. And there's this fear to fail, and there's this, and there's that also that that theory that you know I got to beat these guys. So I got to get them. So NJ, you out prepared them when you went in for negotiations. Would you say that? Absolutely, I did. I out prepared them. I just I knew preparations prevent frustration. I just prepared more than anybody in that room. When I went into that room, they looked at my background, they said, ah, this guy studied civil rights law. You know, so he's definitely, he's not going he's, he's to make it. I went to a small law school in America. Mm-hmm. I was seeing guys who went to Harvard and Stanford and Yale. They had all the, you, you name it, you know. The parents had been negotiators. Mm-hmm. The grandparents had been CEOs. And my mama was a teacher who made $100 in Africa working for a church. Mm. And how the hell, you know, but I think that that was good because my mom working for a church taught me so much humility and also her ass whooping that she gave to me <laughs> kept me grounded, yes. you know. <laughs> so she, the only part of the Bible she would quote to you is that stay not the rod and spoil the child. <laughs> so I, I had to. I think I I knew that before I even knew what the Ten Commandments were. You know, it was always spare not the rod and spoil the child. So she just whooped you every every minute. Mm -hmm. So he kept you grounded, and and that and that helped you a lot. And but it's preparation. You got to prepare. You got to prepare. And being an athlete, it was always like it's practice. Yes, it's practice. So you don't stop practicing. You don't stop preparing. And and no matter what you do. I just knew if I prepared, I would beat them. Mm-hmm. And till today, you know, I got 190 people working in my firm. And most of the young lawyers that work with me or energy advisors or um, oil and gas specialists, they say, why do you still prepare? I said, because I know there's going to be some kid or some other person who has the same kind of shared drive and determination to like I like I had four or five years ago and even today they want to beat me. In order for me to stay on top of my game, I gotta continue because one big mistake or losing one, I'm not gonna be the great guy. I'm gonna be the former great guy. Nobody remembers the former great guy. 
to stay on top, I got to stay. I got to just keep walking. So explain to me how Billions at Play, your new book, came about. Billions at Play came about where we looked at the energy sector. And you say, why must there be always a beef about energy, climate change, Africa? And why, why, do, why do we have so much energy, so much natural resources that people not making it? That was my biggest question. Number two, why is it that the, in the, the energy sector brings the most revenue to most um, third world countries or emerging countries or African countries, but then we don't have no women involved. Mm-hmm. We don't have women leading or, I mean, less than 5% of the industry, you have black women walking in. It's no, then, but also, how can you change that? Instead of us flaring gas, and a lot of Africa, we don't have uh, um, power or light in some, in some places, so we cannot manufacture and create jobs. So we're flaring the gas. We're flaring the gas. And like the big oil companies are flaring the gas. So how can we capture that gas? And when you flare the gas, you, create, you pollute the air and you create a lot of problems and health crisis. How do we, why not we use that gas that's being flared, monetize it, and create jobs and create a better environment. But also climate change. Okay, come on guys, it's real. How do you look at climate change and you say, how do you address it? How do you work towards the transition? And what's the future? How is the future of the energy industry going to look like? And what role can America play in today's world where you see Americans producing more oil. America used to produce about 5 million a, a, um, a day. Now they're doing about 12 million barrels a day. And how do we move to become energy efficient, create jobs at the same time, but also do communities justice in the sense that communities that we live in, they're not polluted, they don't end up doing poorly because of the way we extract natural resources. And it, I felt, you know, when you deal with that every day, and also doing deals, you know, how do you negotiate those tough deals? How do you get in the table, mix it up, really, really pull the best results? And I, and I kept looking, I said, but I've done all, you know, my friends remind me and say, well, you've done all these great things. Why don't you talk about it? And how do you, so how, how, how you got to, to get there? So I started to say, well, I'll write a book about it. And the more I, I wrote the book, I kept feeling this is so important. And I, it wasn't just my thoughts, but it was also talking to other people who disagreed with me, getting their opinions in, getting different experts, and really trying to build something where we can really determine how the future of this industry should work and how we can make it better. And I think a lot of the young people now, there are actually stepping up. You know, we just had globally protesters rallying around the world for global climate strike protests. And it's inspiring that, you know, these young people are contributing to a change that is needed in our society, as well as a lot of professional athletes, you know, that Mm -hmm. talk about how sports is intrinsically linked to our environment, like basketball, ice climbing, swimming, surfing, and people are stepping up to encourage others to protect 
our environment. It, it, it is true that they're stepping up. I wish they did more, but a lot is happening right now, which I'm very happy. Climate change, for example, with young people. Some of the leaders of the climate movement right now are young people in Africa, in Europe, in the United States who are saying, we want these octogenarians, we don't want you to destroy our communities, our climate, and our environment, and then leave, 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 it, leave it worse off for us. Yes, we've seen the cracks. We've seen the effects of it. And you've got to applaud them. And I think that social activism on really driving it has not, has, has not gone unheard. You know, German, I was talking with uh, the German Minister of Environment um, last week, and he was telling me how they are preparing to commit $500 billion in working on climate issues, financing new technologies, and really driving and taking leadership of that. I wow. hope the United States gets to do more and other developed countries get to do, commit more funding to really, really look at that. And young people can really drive it. So when you have um, elections happening, it's important to hold politicians accountable and really push them. And this is where young people come in and they really put climate issues on the ballot and they vote for it and make sure that we all can change our communities and the world we want. Athletes, they have a big role to play. It's not just enough for athletes to go out there, entertain us, and we watch them put their life on the line to really make sure that we enjoy the game. But they are also doing a lot more. You know, I mean, I, you, you look at Europe, a lot of um, um, soccer players, rugby players, even basketball players are saying we got to protect this. But also we have to find ways to engage with management of a lot of these um, sports franchises to embrace this movement and really embrace what... Um, climate activists are really pushing because at the end of the day, they are not trying to hurt anybody. They're just trying to make the world a better place. And that awareness, that education that we can use, professional athletes, celebrities, whom a lot of us will pay money to see them and hear from them, they can really help us to drive a strong message that profits everybody because we, at the end of the day, we have, like what Gandhi says, you've got to be the change that you want to see. Mm-hmm. And it starts with every one of us, and then we inspire and encourage others. Just kind of school me. Tell me about the U.S. role in African energy. American companies have always been those who discovered a lot of oil, a lot of gas in, in, in Africa. They played an amazing role. But also, they were part of some of the most corrupt, most uh, brutal back into the most corrupt um, regimes, some of the dictatorships, and also they were involved in a lot of the, the mismanagement as well. But that has changed a lot. Credit to the American people, the American government, and the American way of doing things. They put in legislation that prevented American companies from engaging in, 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 in treating people poorly, or whether it is come to labor issues or corruption, which is good. But the, the U.S. continues to be a strong partner, a strong player. What is happening right now is that we need more American impact. 
we need more American ingenuity. Because I tell you this, some of the best technology that you have in the energy sector, whether it is um, fighting um, um, uh, clean, clean energy, solar, wind, and all of that, you have it coming out of America. But you really have to have more of that being used to empower people and inspire people and drive people so that this technology can really help us to meet our climate goals and also meet our socially conscious programs that we're trying to drive. So American investment, it's welcome. It's not enough for the U.S. government to only focus its resources on war or or terrorism, which are all important. But also, you're not going to have security in most African communities if you don't if you don't also focus on human security in providing for a good environment and providing for a better energy sector, which Africans need more than to them now more than ever. You know, we talk about a lot of infrastructure here in America and, you know, a, a lot of politicians, you know, when they're going out wanting to be elected, they talk about the infrastructure here. What is needed for Africa's infrastructure throughout a, Africa? A lot, a lot. You need to invest at a minimum $150 billion every year over a five to seven year period to, in order to create infrastructure and do more. And yes, the biggest benefit for American companies, American small businesses, and even the smallest of the smallest. You see in a continent that is going to be, it's already about 950 billion, sorry, million right now, it's close to a billion. But in 10 years, is going to the the continent of Africa is going to be more than is going to it's going to uh, we're going to see at least two to three hundred million people get added of that one point two billion population seventy 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 five percent is going to be under twenty years old that's huge mm. that's huge because now. You, you, when you talk about energy, the biggest infrastructure movements, um, 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 handicaps, whether it is railroads, um, ta- um, ta- well-paved roads, looking at um, issues with regards to moving energy from one area to another, um, from one area in Africa to another, or being able to have the right kind of buildings, airports, hotels, and all of that, it's really, really critical right now because you don't just want to look at Africa from a place where you come in, you tap into resources, you fly them out. But you can really use that infrastructure to develop a manufacturing base. And where you see the United States right now, the United States has a lot of where you, it's a country of 300 million people. So what, you, you, what you're going to do in the future is that you're going to ship out your services. You're going to ship out your technology, American ingenuity. I mean, we all use Facebook today. That's an American creation. WhatsApp, American. So you're going to you're going to have to export that out and investing a lot in African infrastructure. It's a smart idea. It's a really smart idea. But we don't only have to wait on Americans to do that. We in Africa, we have to do that for ourselves. And it is really important that we look at that personal responsibility 
that African excellence that we use our experience and we develop it. Because I believe in that movie I watched as a kid in America, you know, where this guy goes out, they build a stadium where people are doubting him. And he said, if you build, people will come. I think the movie is called uh, Fields of Dreams. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you build, people will come. You got you to put some skin in the game. And I think that's what we have to change in Africa. That idea of putting skin, skin in the game is not foreign. Mm-hmm. It's African because we have to lay the foundation and we have to create an enabling environment so that, uh, you know, if you come in and you say, I'm going to put my $100,000, you should know you can repatriate your money, take return on investment, set up your business and do well. So you do good, but you also make money. And I think that is really critical in this infrastructure drive. And we have to hold the politicians accountable. We have to hold them accountable. They have to do it. And they cannot just siphon their money and not meet the expectations of the people. This is ESPN LA 710. I'm Laferne Cusack speaking with author of Billions at Play, NJ Ayuk. Now, NJ, so what about, you know, there's a, a strong... Uh, narrative going around talking about, you know, some of the work that is going out of our country and out of the U.S. to other countries. What about your plan and accountability? How do you think it affects the whole world? And it's just not it's not a local thing, but an international issue. I, I do. I do understand that. And rightly so. The problem, which I, I, I think in the United States, um, sometimes Americans, Americans fail to understand is that the world has changed. It has improved. You are just 300 million people, and you have to look at, you, you cannot just make your goods and your services and sell to only your 300 million market. That is not enough. You have to sell to China. You have to sell to India. China, 1.5 billion. India, 1.2 billion. The African continent, 1 billion. And, and, and so on and so on. So your goods, your services, which are the best in the, in the market. They are the best in the market. The only way America survives is when it sells its best outside. Because you need... You, if, if Mama always said, if you're selling, you're making money. If you're buying, you're never going to be rich. You know, you're never going to make money if, if you just use all, if you get $100 and you spend that $100 buying stuff, you never make money. So it, it, it's, it's very important. So when you look at jobs, of course, you're going to have, you're going to, have to manufacture some, some of the things outside. But American economy has changed where you're having a big service economy. You know, there's something called Silicon Valley. You know, it's the envy of the world. It's the envy of the world. You cannot trade off Silicon Valley for a coal mine in West Virginia. <laughs> you know, let's just be honest. You cannot trade off Hollywood, you know, for, um, for, for, for some guys in the Appalachian Mountains saying, we got, we got to just hold on to what we have. Hollywood has been the biggest marketer of America, period, because everybody saw America 
in the eyes of Hollywood. American values, which has been what has really shaped the world in pushing American democracy and pushing up what it means to be free and everything. Don't forget as a kid, what drew me to America? You know, there's a movie out there, I don't know, um, you know, I'm a little old and you, you know, so <laughs> you might not remember this. <laughs> I, I got it, you know, I'm turning 40, so I got it. Oh, yeah, I, I, young. Now, now, You're now, a youngin. Now, now they start calling me old. <laughs> but, you know, there's a movie, there was a guy out there called the Murphy. He went out there, did this movie, Coming to America, The Prince of the Munda, you know. And we all, we all watched that movie, and he, and he, he, something he was talking about, America is so free, you can even throw trash on the street. I don't think that's true, but mm. it was so beautiful. It was a great movie. And that is, that is what America represents. And when you look at it with jobs, you look at it with manufacturing, going overseas, you've got to control that. You've got to do more in America because at the end of the day, what you also have to balance, you have to find the right kind of balance. There's a lot of middle class, low-income, low-educated people that can still take some of the jobs that are going to China. So you've got to hold corporations accountable that they're not just shipping jobs abroad because they want to either cheat people abroad for cheap labor where they think in America they would have to pay people living wages. So you have to look at both sides, but you have to find a balance because at the end of the day, it's not a bad thing to trade with the world. If you have all your goods and all those beautiful, and imagine we just said Hollywood movies would only be viewed in America. Mm-hmm. You know, that, I mean, in India, they watch more movies. Yes. The culture is all about movies. You know, <laughs> People, we, in, in America, if you say you go on a date, people are like, okay, we're going out. In India, a date is like, let's go watch movies. Right. You know? <laughs> so imagine everybody said, we're not going. Imagine, you know, I mean, you've got, you got to look at, in Africa, a very, a continent where people live in poverty. When you're playing the NBA, the finals, those seven games, you know, everybody shows up at work late. <laughs> They buy pay-per-view subscriptions. <laughs> they will buy everything. I mean, these are the poorest of the poor. They're going to buy pay-per-view subscriptions to watch these NBA games. And so with the time difference with the United States, people up at 4 o'clock in the morning watching game one, yep. game two. And everybody is like, you, you walk up, you walk up, hey, people having kids. Kids, they're like, my kid, my name is King James, King James. And I will King James, LeBron. Right. He's the king. <laughs> and, and, and you look at that, you look at that much income, but that's what America has to put out there. So at the end of the day, I think we got to, it can be done, but the way it's been done right now with the shouting and, you know, you don't have to holler to get, to get what you want. You don't have to tweet to get what you want. You know, you, you, you know, like uh, I learned one thing in, in, in making doing deals. Never let your antics overshadow your cause. You know, you get in the room, you sit on the table, you find a solution. I think a solution can be found. If I was negotiating the deal with China, I will sit on the table with them. I'm not just going to go on this kind of like, you can't shock and jive your way through this mm-hmm. in, in, when you deal with different cultures. You just can't. 
You know, you just, you just, you just, you just came. You get on the table, you sit with them. China, you've been unfair. You've taken a lot of our technology. You've done a lot of reengineering. You've done that. You need to stop this currency. All these, all the ills. We need to sit back on the table. You walk with them because at the end of the day, when you start getting into trade wars or missile wars, that it's, it's to me, it's weakness. It tells me you've had the inability to cut a deal, and if you're gonna be a deal maker, you that's 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 where the deal making instincts really come. You gotta get on the table. You gotta find ways to make it work. That's 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 who a true deal maker is. It's not to burn the house down. When you burn the house down, trust me, it costs a lot more money yes. to build it back up. So, what are some negotiation tips you could share with us? I think the first thing is respect. You got to respect the other side. You know, I go into a lot of deals. I see a lot of people walk in there. They say they're thinking that they know more, and they're looking down on, the, on on other people. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It don't matter if you go into Harvard or you went to Yale or you went to UCLA. You walk in the room. You got to respect the other side, and you got to be transparent. If you really want to get the deal done, be transparent. You know, and you got to be able to explain why you're asking for this. And I think that my number one um, key to negotiating is respecting the other side, and also do everything to be a great listener. You know, I get on the I get on the table, I shut up. <laughs> I just listen to everybody. Yes. I keep listening to them. I let them tell me. I let them go off. And it, I just listen to them. I let them talk. I just listen to them. And the more you listen, you know, the guy talks his heart out. He tells you his concerns. And you be solution-oriented. Always be willing to sit back and say, how about we do this? I mean, I'll give you a good case. I had a... a, a Really big deal I was doing. It was going to be $2.5 billion worth of natural resources. And they, this country wanted about $9 million up front in signing bonus. My client didn't have that money. Mm-hmm. And that was going to be a sticky point. And while walking through the entire process, we figured out a way to say, you know what? We'll pay you something right now because at the end of the day, what, during that conversation and listening to them, I realized that they didn't. They, yes, they didn't, we had to pay nine million. They're not going to bring that down. But yes, yes, something that was going to happen. They really needed. What they really needed was four million dollars up front because they had to pay salaries of civil of uh, state uh, of state workers. And so, no matter what you tried to do, it was not going. It was not going to fly. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, we put a deal together. We say, listen, you're going to get $4 million right now. And then we're going to pay you the rest in when different things are met. So we got the seismic, we got the geological information, and we'll pay, we'll, we'll pay out these other staggered payments. And it worked. But while paying attention to them and listening to the other side, you've got to understand what their critical needs were. And you've got to understand how... You can really structure it and make sure that you, they, they left out their winning and we left out, uh, we, we also left winning. 
Mm-hmm. Because if you go in thinking that you're going to pull a fast one and you're just going to win, well, I tell you something, especially during international negotiations. You could sign the deal, but then let me see how you're going to implement the deal. So you negotiate thinking, how am I going to implement this? How am I going to implement this? So when you negotiate and you think implementation at, at, at hand, you, end up, you have to end up being fair but also never forget the community. One of the greatest ways I've been able to do deals was to always ensure that no matter what I do, I always put set aside money for what I think millions of dollars to empower local communities, but also put millions of dollars to um, create jobs and training programs for women. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, what happens is that the deals I do, they end up leaving the test of time because you go back into those communities, you see jobs that have been created for women, you see a lot of women entrepreneurs coming, in, coming out, community entrepreneurs, young people, scholarships and training programs, health centers, and it, and it, it gets bigger. So what happened is that that same kind of social mindset which I had going into negotiations it helped me to say, I'm not just going to let everything with your government. So I let the companies and I create a, 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 a platform where communities also work. So look at in, a can, in an African country we work in, we negotiated that this money should be spent on combating HIV, malaria, and other diseases. Mm-hmm. So we use American technology, U.S. funds, to do that, and this money was coming out of the project. So you have to have a social conscience in mind, and you engage that. So you're using that, and you're really, really driving things. So it comes with, we, you, have, you have to look at the big picture, mm-hmm. but never, ever walk out of the table. I have never walked out of a negotiating table. Oh, yeah. Never. <laughs> no matter how tough it is, I feel if I walk out of the table, means... I have failed. I always, you know, the scripture tells you, blessed are the peacemakers. You have to figure out how to bring everybody back and you've got to bring it home. You're not going to go home without no bacon. You've got to bring the bacon home. So you have to find a way to keep that. But my number one thing I tell every young person, every person who wants to go into international negotiations, respect Mm-hmm. doesn't matter where you are. You might, you, your, your dad might be Trump. You might think you have all the power. But when you walk in that room and you don't respect nobody, you know, there's a reason why Aretha, one of her most biggest hits was uh, respect. Yeah, yeah. You know, you got, <laughs> you, you, you know, you got the R-E-S-P-E-C-T right. people. When you do that, deals happen. I also think that respect but communication as well. And you're talking about that as well. You're listening to other people, seeing their wants and their needs, and you're communicating that. But a lot of people are not communicating. Therefore they draw up their own conclusions of what's, what's happening. And therefore that's when the uh, confusion comes in. True. Because they, they they go in there, they talk to you. They don't talk with you. So you, you, you know, you talk with the other side, not to the other side. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, and I see that a lot with um, no, no disrespect to my American brothers and sisters. They come in 
wearing their nice cowboy hats and boots and thinking that the world owes them something, you know, and they, they I'm, go, I'm going to Africa, you know, they don't know what they're doing. And you walk in there thinking, this is what we're going to do. No, 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 no. You got you to gotta listen to them, communicate with them. And, you know, while doing that, trust me, people do find ways to work. Mm-hmm. All, you know, you prepare, fine. You get your points, fine. But when you listen and engage the other side and break the ice, you know, you realize that you have so much more in common. Like, I remember getting into negotiations and, you know, I had somebody sit on the other side and we, we, you guy, we guy kept going, looking, you know, talking down on people and everything and not even doing his homework. Then I realized that this guy actually lived in a city where my parents lived in America, oh, wow. in a small town in America, Charles County, Maryland, lived in Waldorf, you know, right two blocks away from my parents' home. So, I, so while going through that, I break the ice, I talk to him, I'm like, where you from, brother? And he's like, you know, I'm coming to for He's like, you wouldn't know. I'm like, why? He said, well, I live in Charles County, Maryland. And, and then he had worked at a steakhouse where I was, I was a bus boy. <laughs> and I told him, like, hell yeah, I worked at Great, Great American Steak and Buffet, and I also was a bus boy at Cracker Barrel. <laughs> and he was like, really? Yeah. So we knew the, we like, we knew everything. And, and he said, you know, if you didn't even ask me, you just came in here, you just talked to me, only walk, 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 I wouldn't even know. Today he's my friend. Aww. And, we, we, we were able to put a deal together where no matter how things were difficult, he'll call me and I like, hey, man, I don't know, but my guys can move this. Can, can you move your guys this way? And we, we kept moving because, you know, when you negotiate, forget about being a lawyer, just a negotiator. Mm-hmm. You, you have to make a deal happen. You know, you're not worth every single dollar to pay you if you don't make it happen. And... You, you, you look at the other side, it don't matter how rude they might be, keep your cool, you just keep walking. And, you know, I've gone in situations where somebody would just call me directly by my first name, and I just kept going at them with, sir, you're being really disrespectful. And I, the more disrespectful sometimes people try to be, the more respectful, you know, I just charm them with love. Mm-hmm. You know, I give them more respect, sir. Yes, sir. I'm going to get coffee. I'm like, would you like some coffee? Would you like some water? And you might look at that and say, you're being too nice. No, I know what I'm doing because I know I'm actually getting to you. You know, he, you, you, you think you're winning, but my, my soul is liberated because I'm actually showing you love. Mm-hmm. But also, I know I'm getting you on the other side because you're going to be so pissed, you know, because mm-hmm. you, you, you're doing that to irritate me. You've you got to learn how to keep your cool, you know, because you're dealing with big, big money, right. especially when you're doing international deals. It's big money. So if you lose your cool, you are not going to get it right. right. And that's what they want you to. It's kind of like being an athlete. It's like being on the – you know, I, I always say – if you on the if you on the pitch and anybody who plays spot, what you realize always is that 
There's a lot of trash talk that goes in the, in, on, on the pitch. Most <laughs> people don't know. There's a lot of trash talk. And if you let the trash talk get over your head, you might punch someone in the face. What happens? You're out. Yeah. <laughs> and your team is going to lose. You know? So you have to, you have, you, 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 so you, you keep your cool. And I learned that being a soccer player. I kept my cool. No matter what happened, there'll be a trash talk on the pitch. Someone's going to talk. You know, you go you talk to one, talk about your mama, someone talk about your daddy, you talk about your head. Uh, it's, it's okay. I said, okay, no problem. Right. But I know what I wanted. It's pull, it, they're trying to pull you out the game. They're trying to take yeah, your head yeah, out of it. the game. That's it. And, and if you fall for it, then you lose it. If you fall for it, then you lose it. I mean, I, I remember watching uh, the story behind Ali Foreman. You know, I mean, Foreman throwing all these punches, mm-hmm. and Ali saying, is that all you got? <laughs> is that all you got? And the guy keep punching. Yeah. The guy kept punching, and then he punched himself out. <laughs> and before he realized, he, he, had, he had no A in him anymore. Then he was knocked out. Mm-hmm. But he was a, he was a bad, George Foreman was the baddest, but he was the baddest guy in the heavyweight at that time. You know, but you played it. So you always have to be worried with the mind games, and you're going to see a lot of the mind games. You're going to see a lot of the mind games. Like, for me, when I left the United States, I was very sensitive with racial issues and everything. And then you get somebody walk in the room and call you boy, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and you look at it and you know, it's like, man, you're American. You wouldn't call someone boy in America, mm-hmm. you know, but I just knew, I'm like, uh-uh, he's trying to get to me. He's trying to knock me off my game, you know, and I kept my cool. And the best way I beat you when you do that is just to get a damn good deal. And I got to win. And when I win, then the guy comes back. It's like, you know, yeah, I know the boy. The boy won, didn't you? Didn't, didn't you? <laughs> but always be very careful because I see the lot of young people. They get so emotional, and you know, you're gonna, you need to get an emotional check. You could be passionate, mm-hmm. but be careful with, with, with your emotions. Don't let your emotions overtake your reasoning faculties. Right. And that is something which I try to do keep in check very well. You know, never lose your cool. Listen carefully. Respect the other side. Communicate your positions properly. And always pay and go back and check with your client and with your team. But also pass the ball. When I sit in that table and I'm leading the negotiation, I let other people, I would ask my finance guy. I said, come on, you go ahead and talk. And I'll pass the ball to my engineering guy. Mm-hmm. And I'll pass the ball even to my communications person. How are we going to run this? And when you keep passing the ball and everybody's talking, you know, the other guys on the other side thinking, well, he's the boss. One person is going to talk and there's 60 percent behind him. No, I'm taking my notes. I'm listening. It gives me time to think because if I'm the only one talking, I'm probably talking to myself. Mm-hmm. So I let everybody be talking. And then I come in up, I, I, I sum it up. I bring it home because I always want to put up a good summation on everything because at the end of the day, you need to be able to tell a story yeah. because even in negotiations, you need to have stories. You need to have a narrative. People like stories. And the other side is going to pay attention to those stories and those narratives that you create. And that drives it home. 
because we go back to an old African tradition. When there were no TVs, nothing, in the evening, you gather everybody around the kitchen table and you tell them a story. And that sticks in the head. And you want people to leave that negotiation with memorable lines, memorable, memorable things that is going to stick in your head and you'll get a deal done. How would you go about showing the urgency, the resources that Africa has and where the continent is going? I think it's what we're doing now. A lot of us Africans who have had the chance to go to school in the United States, in Europe, joining with American counterparts, need to be speaking up and we need to tell a story. We need to tell an African story of every day. I got a granddad, you mentioned cell phones. You'd be so surprised. You will see a grandma who is working at a farm, has two cell phones, and spending about $60 a month paying, buying phone credit. Wow. Now, if somebody in inner city LA spends $60 a month, that would be a whole big old bundle. Mm-hmm. So what, is, what, ha- what has happened? Telecommunication entrepreneurs in the continent they are making a killing. Mm -hmm. And if you want to develop an app today to fix problems in America, you got to look to Africa because you're looking at places where they are starting from the bottom, where there is a lot of chronic critical problems so you can really develop something to address these issues. So you're doing good and you're making money. We in Africa and teaming up with our American friends. We got to talk with each other. We got to talk and we got to engage to showcase these opportunities. But also, we have an obligation to also make sure that we have an enabling environment to really attract investors, to really attract people. And when we talk about investors, it's not about saying you got to come, you got to have a million dollars. Are you going to have $200 million? No. You could, the, the guys who are in the continent from America, a lot of them I know, they came into Africa with less than $20,000. Started something small, started their key, they, they had decided they work with startups. But the beautiful thing about American ingenuity is that, I mean, you, you, you love it or hate it, you got to give to the American kids. They can hustle. Mm-hmm. They can hustle, you know. They'll be, they'll be some drama queens <laughs> and drama kings, but yes. they can hustle. Yes. You know, they complain about everything. <laughs> they'll be hooting and hollering, <laughs> everything. You sit somewhere, you know they're loud. You, you walk into a coffee shop or a restaurant, the people will out there, you know, okay, those Yankees, they're there. You know, they're laughing loud, they're shouting loud, but they can hustle. But what you do is that these guys with small, small capital, Great technology, but also in a heart to really see. Americans have this knack for to see, to smell opportunity, mm-hmm. and they take it and they build from there. That is something that Americans have, and Africans have to showcase this opportunity. Because one of the things that, especially a lot of young Americans, they do good, they know good, and they want to be good because they understand that our future. It's all interwoven with one another. You know, Dr. King says, you can't, I can't be what I ought to be until you are um, what 
you have to be. You know, I don't know if I'm right in my quotations, but I think that is it. We, we, we are caught up in this together. And I think that using you and being a small business person, looking at Africa, and sometimes you might, you don't just have to be an entrepreneur. We have to look at this African resource and say, I'll go in there, I'll work for, I'll work for something. One of the big things I'm doing this year is we're going to launch in, uh, in, um, in, in, in November 30 open positions for U.S. Africa Energy Fellows. We're going to take a lot of American kids from the inner cities. We're going to bring them through in as a fellow in Africa mm-hmm. with the African Energy Chamber, which I chair. Wow. We're going to pay them a great salary, about three to $5,000 a month. All accommodation paid, everything paid, but they're going to live in, in Johannesburg, South Africa. Wow. And from South Africa, they'll, walk, they'll go walk in on energy matters in Nigeria, in Egypt, in Ethiopia, in Ghana, in Senegal, and really provide services, develop small businesses, and showcase opportunities to other Americans. For someone like me, that is the best thing which we can do. But also is to continue doing what we're doing with the um, United Negro College Fund and other entrepreneurial opportunities and other um, char- charitable opportunities that we got invested. Because, you know, everything I have today comes from America. America gave me this opportunity and yes, I'm not working in America, mm-hmm. but without America, I wouldn't be jacked. So I can't forget that. Mm-hmm. I can't forget that. And we have to create an opportunity. But it is there. But we've got to open it up. We, we, and we have to also diversify the people that are doing this business. It cannot just be people of a certain background, rich, wealthy, from a certain, a certain state. It's got to be all Americans. It got to be people from the inner cities because the inner cities have really not tapped into these resources and this drive because when you do, people will then be inspired and think rather than engage in a life of crime or be or think low of yourself or think that I can't make it, I, I feel trapped in this neighborhood, you can know like, hey, you know what? Um, Ray Ray went out. They did it. <laughs> yeah. Shit, I could do it. <laughs> I could do <laughs> you know? it. You can do it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know if Ray Ray can do it, you know, like Pokey 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 just went out there, set up a little shop, and uh, and he went out there, did something very nice. Because we need inspirations. We need to see other people that look like us that have been in our communities, in the inner cities, whom nobody ever gave them a shot. Right. Them doing it well locally and also internationally, and them coming back with these great stories and different things that they've seen. It's a plus for America, it's a plus for Africa, but it's a plus for the inner cities and those whom nobody ever thought they could see the world in a different light. Because you don't have to be the kid that says, Oh my God, I need to get a passport, I need to buy a ticket. And I got, I got to go to Cape Town. Like, mm-hmm. no, just be there. And we going. And that's one of the things which I which I love doing. What I do is opening up these opportunities, bringing the kids in, driving them, pushing them. 
but also to see other kids hustle. Right. And and you've seen somebody hustle and you say, God, this guy within two years, him just working hard and driving, they're making money. And if they can do that, why can't the America? America is the capital of making money. Mm-hmm. Rack to rich stories. So it's also benefit to Africa because we can see people with that mindset, that competitive mindset of making money, building racks to riches, come around us and also inspire us. So we can inspire Americans and Americans can inspire us. It's a win for both sides. So we talked about how, you know, athletes can come in and shed light on uh, climate change and how we can protect our environment because it's all connected. What about uh, the leaders calling on leaders internationally? How are you going about doing that and what effect does it have on society? I think that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book, Billions at Play. One of the reasons why was was that I felt I had walked into the big rooms of OPEC with that the organization of petroleum exporters. I had walked in rooms where I could meet Vladimir Putin, Barack Obama, and meet African leaders and European leaders and everything. And you felt, I don't think I'm doing my job. I don't think I'm contributing the way I need to contribute by not actually driving something bigger than my own personal interest. You have to, and that is what I am going to commit, and I'm committing myself to doing over the next, you know, who knows, this might become my my life's work, Mm -hmm. you know, and to just keep pushing and driving. But, you know, you do it with dignity, with pride, and you do it also with some finesse, and you have fun doing it. But it's really getting in the room and saying, you know, Mr. President, we can both do a lot of good. You don't get in that room and lecture them. Mm -hmm. It is you understand the politicians, you understand the ego, their egos and everything. And my strategy has always been, Mr. President, you are going to be a bigger and better and well-remembered leader if you take on these big issues and you be the person that changes the course of history. You have a chance to draw history and be on the right side of history and use this moment to chart a path that will be remembered. And sometimes leadership happens by consequence. Mm -hmm. But these moments, require for bold, pragmatic leadership. People who got guts and who got the gumption to really move out there and say, we're going to shape it. Dr. King teaches us that the arc of a moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. The truth of the matter is that it doesn't bend by itself. People bend it. People shape it. And that, to me, is using those advocacy skills going back to my background, my foundation, and saying, okay, um, I'm going to be like Roger Kipling. I can walk with kings, but if I get my chance to be in that room, and I get a lot of chance to be in that room, i got to take the voices of those kids who went to Sunday school with me, those kids who went to primary school, elementary school in Africa with me without shoes, 
I got to take the kid, the voices of Ray Ray, who protected me in the ghettos of Newark and D.C., and those guys who kept me sane and said, you're, you're this little lost African kid that is going to class, and we're going we're to make sure you're a kid that you don't get through no drive-bys. And the grandma who is not eating or getting the right kind of shake with, with, by the system. If I'm going to sit in there, I'd try to take those voices and push it and ensure that climate change, energy poverty issues, jobs, and everything be there. So at the end of the day, I find myself being more effective and being able to do more because I don't seek power. Mm. I don't want to be powerful. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be a politician. So nobody is thinking of the fact that, oh, man, he, he needs my job. I want to be president. Mm-hmm. You know, I seek influence. Yeah. Because with influence, I can do more, I can effect more change, and I can drive an agenda like most of the things we've talked about today. We can get that in the forefront and really be an advocate. And that, to me, is very important. Because if I don't do that, it's, then it means it's a poverty and ambition. It means that I'm not living to the true meaning of what my mama taught me, right. giving me a chance from a $100 a month job. And that would, not, that, would, that would not be me doing the right thing. Because at the end of the day, all the money, all the riches, I'm going to leave them behind. But the chance to really change history and change the course of things and impact the world in a way that can be so big, it can be done. If you look at all my heroes in America, um, Dr. King, Good Marshall, Cesar Chavez, you know, or some of the union activists and even some of the business guys like Bob Johnson and all of them, they never held political office. You know, they never held elected office. And I, that, that's what I model my walk around. I don't need to. I don't, I don't want to. You know, if the day you hear me running for office, <laughs> you go on radio and you tell everybody don't vote for him. <laughs> You know, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want it. I don't want it. It's a mindset, right? I want to influence. I want to influence policy. I want to get us rally around a cause bigger than our own personal interest. Well, and I think that makes me a better global citizen. Yes. When Because I can bring voices from Africa, voices from America, and bringing that together. And I find myself in a unique position. And I think it's important to use that while you have it. You have that currency, use it. Because if you don't use it, when you lose it, you're going to regret it. Yeah, and I I think that's one of the reasons why I thought it was so important to talk to you is every day we're being combated with it's us against them. Well, we're all in this world together, and if we Mm -hmm. can put our all of our energy together, we can see the future, a better future for our family and our friends. And you're it's so important. Yeah. And you're definitely doing that, especially with uh, bi- billions at play. Thank you so much. And I wish I could, I, I wish I can do more because you have, it's our time to do it. You know, my generation, we're so lucky, you know, I'm getting old 40 very soon, but, we we are so lucky that we live in a time when we have two cell phones, Twitter, mm-hmm. WhatsApp, mm-hmm. Facebook, 
And what's the other one? Instagram and Snapchat, you name it. Mm-hmm. We have to use all these tools to impact, influence, communicate, and drive our society to be better than we live it. And putting a book out there to really, to, to, to really drive this and really push people towards it, it there's nothing bigger than, than, than anything. But the book is, is one thing, but action, putting action to it, it's even more important. And that's why I wrote this book, to have people just say, this, this, this is the big, and we're challenging the status quo and it, I'm just so happy that it's been well received. I have, I mean, come on, for a kid like me, I got presidents <laughs> calling me. That's you know, yeah. I mean, I got president, I got, I got, I got secretary of state, and all the guys. I'm like, man, you all, you all know I wasn't in shape for this, right? They're like, no, 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 we need to talk to you, and that's good. But I don't just want to get, you know, I don't drink. So I don't want to get into a term like, hey, come on, guys. You know, you all know I don't drink. So don't think I'm going to come in here drinking some whiskey. Right. I'm going to drink tea and sparkling water, but we're going to, we're going to get this thing going. Yeah. Like, good start, you know. Yeah. So it, 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 work, it works for me, and, I, and I'm just excited, you know. It's, uh, it, it's where I want to be, and I could not be more thankful to America. for and So what a, what a magical country yeah. for really getting me to this place. I don't know what my life would have been without America. Oh, well, I, I love that you were able to share your story with us. Uh, and Jay, can you tell us how we can get your book? On Amazon.com, the biggest American invention. Yeah. Okay. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, know, <laughs> you go on Amazon.com, <laughs> Barnes & Noble, you get it there, billions at play. Uh, you know, the future of uh, energy and doing deals. Once you get it, feel free to text, email, go on Twitter. You know, the good thing is that I respond to every mail. Oh, great. I do respond to every mail. And for every young person out there who's thinking about energy and Africa and doing deals, we have the U.S. Africa Energy Fellows. It's going to start in in uh, November. We're willing to talk to them. We're willing to listen you're going to get paid. But it's kind of like an apprentice program, not like Trump, but something even better. Mm-hmm. We need to get you out there doing deals. We need to get you out there changing the world. But it starts with the book. Go out there and get it. There are no discounts now. <laughs> Just go get one and then see how it changes you. You know, yes. <laughs> it's still new and we're doing very good on Amazon. So, But we, 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 we need to get, create a movement around this and really make it happen. And I'm so thankful to you and for ESPN for having me for more than an hour. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's such a great delight for me. Thank you. And it was definitely a, a learning experience for me. I always like to learn from my guests and I, I know I have more to learn from you. Can you be my mentor? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, given that I'm getting old, I'm, I'm qualified to mentor people. So anytime and next right. time you're in Africa, you should definitely, definitely let us host you in South Africa. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. Author, you bet. author and lawyer and father and entrepreneur, N.J. Ayok. Definitely a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. And God bless you now. ESPN LA 710.